Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me is Jane Litt from Dear Author. Today we are talking about the canon of romance, not the phallic large implements of war that decorate battlefields, but the books that are influential and perennial and have established and influenced the genre as it was and as it is now. This is a conversation that's long and goes in circles, and we don't arrive at definitive conclusions, but I hope you'll let us know what you think. On with the podcast. First, let's uh, talk about the book that we bought in the last podcast, just because if readers are listening to our podcast and buying based upon what we buy, I just want to give the warning. <laughs> <laughs> you mean... Um... You mean the the uh, the vamp the werewolf the werewolf book? Yeah, that we both um, didn't really like. Yeah, oh. and I don't want to talk about it a long time. I just want to say that we bought that book by we the pale moonlight. We both did, and I finished it, and you did not. No, because well, you have to understand that if if Jane knows that I'm reading the same book as her at about the same time, she'll send me one or two word email messages to tell me how it's going. And sometimes she'll send me a whole block of text that's hilarious. And it and it's frustrating because we read at different times. So she'll send me tempting pieces of text when I'm, you know, feeding my kids or doing the dishes or something and I can't read right then. But if she doesn't like a book, it gets more and more terse and more and more irritable and shorter and shorter to the point where she's just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's all so as she was reading this book she was emailing me i don't think i like this and, and i said something well what about the other chick oh i wish she was the heroine <laughs> you when you wish secondary characters the heroine it, things are bad so yes you did not like it no the i just felt like I, I, I didn't understand what the author was trying to do with her character because her character is really unlikable the heroine, yes. The hero I kind of sympathized with. The heroine I found really... But he's not really even the hero because there's this weird intimation toward the end of the book that maybe there's going to be a triangle. Because the book is a cliffhanger. Very big cliffhanger. Lovely. Yeah. And, and so um, I, I just didn't understand the, the, the main character, the protagonist, and it's first person is pretty unlikable and i i wasn't sure if she was supposed to be unlikable and then redeemed or whether we were supposed to find this unlikable character charismatic and interesting or whether she didn't even realize she was writing an unlikable character and i think it's actually the last one i think that by the time i stopped reading the main the main character the heroine had made so many decisions that compromised her in my perspective i just did not like her or wish to root for her and i ultimately didn't care what happened to her because i thought she was crappy right and so it, no matter what uh the author was trying to do i think it didn't work for us mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to give that caveat. Yes, we were talking the, about it. To all the podcast uh, readers who are listeners who bought that book, hey, it was only 99 cents. Yes. And we can recommend other 99 cent books that are awesome to make up for it. Do you have any right, 99 I, cent recommendations? I do. Well, um, they're not 99 cents. You're such an expensive person. I know, but I did read... Uh, this book called Sophie and Carter. Did I talk about this book, though, in a previous podcast? You mentioned it to me because the cover image 
has been used for other books because it's it's a pair of people in jeans and bare feet against a white background. So it, it's a very stark cover image. We've talked about how the cover image has been used. Actually, no, we didn't even talk about it on the podcast. We talked about it in an email. Maybe we'll just have to start reading our email for the podcast. Well, I really we talk it's, about <laughs> it's two ninety nine and it's pretty short. I think it's no more than like twenty twenty five thousand words. It's kind of expensive for twenty thousand words. It is, but I really enjoyed it. It's about two kids. They have uh they live next door to each other. <clears throat> Carter's mom uh is um schizophrenic, suffering some type of mental uh disease from being beat so much by her husband. Oh god. And uh he's been abused too. The I can't recall whether the father left because he died or got arrested or something, but he's out of their life and Carter pretty much takes care of his mother. And then Sophie's mom is a um, drug-addled prostitute who barely remembers she has four kids. Oh Lord. And they both um, you know, they're living adult lives while trying to finish their senior year in high school. And they help each other and they look at each other through their neighbor windows and they think about how, you know, how much they admire the other person and how they're um, coping with the problems that they have at home. And at at the end of each day, they, uh, after his mother has gone to sleep and she's put her younger siblings to bed, Mm -hmm. they sit on the porch and they just, sometimes they sit in silence and sometimes they talk and then over the course of this short book, they realize they have, they both have very strong feelings for each other beyond mm-hmm. friendship. And, and it's just a really sweet story. Aww. Yes. Um, I also really liked, and this is kind of an ex, more of an expensive book, but the Catching Jordan by um, Miranda Kenialli. It's published by Sourcebooks, $4.99. It's actually one of the best sports books I've read uh, in a long time. Really? Yeah, Jordan uh, uh, is. Is this a YA? It's a YA. I was going to say this cover looks YA because those Jordan are some skinny legs daughter, on that cover. Jordan is the daughter of a uh, uh, an elite pro football quarterback, and she is a tall girl. I, I think in the book she might be like six feet. Right. And her brother is um, a quarterback at a. Uh, at a Southern college and, and is fairly successful and she wants to play college ball. She plays the quarterback on her high school football team. She's very good. And um, she has a very difficult relationship with her father because her father doesn't want her to play football. And initially um, you, you think that he's being kind of a sexist jerk because he's totally supportive of his son playing football, but not her. Right. But as the story unpacks itself, you see that his, her father is just really worried about her getting injured and, you know, the concussions that mm-hmm. players can suffer and that he just, you know, in some ways it is misogynistic, but he, he really wants to protect her. And he realizes that he either has to learn to come to terms with his fear or lose his daughter altogether. And I thought that was a really interesting storyline. That is interesting. Why is he not as concerned about his son? Because, you know, his son is bigger and stronger, and he feels like he, you know, his daughter is slighter and more um, prone to becoming injured. So 
you know, he, like I said, he has to come to terms with that. The there's a love triangle between her, her best friend, and a new player uh, who new kid who transfers in who plays quarterback. And so there's tension on the field. There's tension off the field. The pro one of the problems is the uh, quarterbacking or, or the the love triangle is fairly weak. I mean, mm -hmm. you always know who she's intended to end up with. And the romance that she has with this quarterback is pretty tepid. And, and the mm -hmm. way that it, they leave it behind, I thought, it was very strange. Um, but I, the, there's a recruiting uh, in the story, and I thought that was pretty accurate, um, having some knowledge of that myself. And I just, I thought it was really a well-done book, and sports is not uh, thrown in there as some kind of afterthought, but it's really integral to the story. That's really interesting. Can I just tell you, looking at Amazon's little carousel, there are so many YA sports romances. It's like Friday Night Lights became a huge thing in YA literature, and I didn't even notice it happening. There's a lot of them, and a lot of them are football, about girls wanting to play football. So the canon and romance. Yes, this comes from a reader email. So read the email. I'm about to. Read it. Read it. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am, I will. Yes, Jane, Jane is the dominant in this relationship. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> um, this, this email comes from Erica. Hello, Erica. Dear Sarah and Jane, I adore your podcast. It is so funny and charming and wonderful, and I keep returning to old ones to listen to work, listen to at work on days when I'm grumpy. So thank you for that. Oh, no, Erica. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Um, she also adores our sites and says we're doing fabulous things, and she loves it. Thank you again. So here's her question. Erica says, I've come into romance a bit late in the last five years, maybe. I used to be a total English literature snob, and I regret that a lot, although I think I was also scarred from reading some terrible old school romances of my mom's, too. Anyway, I've started broadening my reading in the genre, and I'm finding some seriously awesome stuff, but I'm wondering if there's a romance canon, you know, like a list somewhere that says you need to read these to be able to discuss romance well. If there is, can you point me to it? And if there isn't, could you give me some suggestions as to where to start in building up my romance knowledge? Thank you so much and continue kicking ass. I think that's a very good question, and I actually think that it is the source of a lot of the disagreement between online romance communities and bloggers online because different people have a concept of of what you have to have read in order to understand where the genre is. Well, and I think part of the problem with reading the canon is you got to read some bad books. Yep, you do. I, I was just starting to write that when I was writing down notes because I knew that if I tried to do this off the top of my head I'd be like yeah you gotta read um uh, Calvin and Hobbes yeah that's exactly a romance thing one of the things I realized is that you do have to read some Jude Devereaux to understand where so many of the tropes come from even ones that show up in paranormal romance yeah but there are some great ones too I think part of the problem though is that um <clears throat> what you may have read when you were 19 isn't so appealing when you're you know, 29 or yes. 39. For example, I read Whitney, my love when I was uh, 
14. And I thought that that was the bee's knees, even the rape. Uh, so, you know, looking back on it, I'm kind of horrified at how much I enjoyed that book. Yep. But I think Whitney, my love is a canonical book in the romance genre. And I think you have to read the original one, not the revised version that McNaught put out several years ago. I mean, it's an important book because it, it, it reflects the time period uh, of the, of romance. Mm -hmm. And not every book it, that was published in romance when Whitney, my love came out in the eighties, uh, was raptastic. I mean, uh, there were a lot of books that were nothing like that, but it's a canonical book of its period. I also think it's one of those books that many, many, many romance readers whose taste may be very diverse from one another will have both read that book. It's a common experience. And I also think that that to some extent, that's also part of what establishes a canon that enough people have read and understood it, that it's almost a common language. And it's a point at which many divergent romance tastes will converge. When I was starting to write about this and sort of jot down ideas and, 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 names and books that I thought should be on the list. And I totally put Joan Wolfe and Julie Garwood and Judith McNaught and Jude Devereaux on there. Apparently I like Jay's. Maybe I should start a website where all the people. Johanna are... Lindsay. Yeah. I, I'm going to start a website where everyone has a J name. Cause that has, I already done. have that website. Yeah, I know. I'm just going to totally Bogart that. <laughs> <laughs> and Johanna Lindsay. I don't know what it is about Johanna Lindsay. And this happens to me over and over again. There are some books of hers that even though the, the, the plot and the characters are not something that I enjoy, I still cannot stop reading them. She's got crack in the writing. She's cracktastic. She she and Jude Devereaux. I mean, I, I think I have a greater affection than you for Jude Devereaux books. Um, one of the things I think we talked about before is exaggerated writing. And, and I don't think you really enjoy that. But one of the things I like about Jude Devereaux and Johanna Lindsay, their characters are writ large and the emotions are large. And <clears throat> it, it gives a heightened sense of um, reading experience because everyone's so emotional. And Jude Devereaux, I think, writes that way. And I haven't read her in years and years and years, but I used to read everything she ever had. And mm -hmm. I, when I bought paper books, I tried to build the biggest Jude Devereaux paperback library that was in existence. Yep. And, um, you know, my twin of fire, twin of ice sat right next to each other. Oh, and... They have to sit next to each other. You can't not put them together. <laughs> so, and look um... at how that influenced other books like twin of ice and twin of fire. You can trace that to the Julia Quinn Lost Duke of Wyndham and uh, Mr. Is it Mrs. Oh, Davenport, I presume. Well, let's Davenport? face it. Jude Devereaux invented you are the true love when you can tell the twins apart. Yes. She invented the predetermined faded pair. It, it, it appeared later in paranormal romance, but she'd invented the faded pair. I mean, that that's remarkable. I always believed that, too. Oh, I mean, totally. Remember, I think it was in Sweet Liar. Um, do you remember that book? Oh, yes, I do. And uh, when the heroine was at the picnic and so the guy comes up to her and she's like shaking him off and all offended. And then everyone's staring at her and she's embarrassed. And then the hero's like, no, now I know you're my true love. Yes. There is a short story by Jude Love Deborah. that part. Oh. 
There's a short story by Jude Devereaux in one of those holiday holiday anthologies. Um, and the hero is the boss and the um the heroine it works in the typing pool and she's a widow and she's really prickly and she doesn't like want to date anybody and she's tired of everyone idolizing the boss because he's so handsome and at the holiday christmas party he ends up in in she ends up in his office for some reason and sees a picture of him with another man and she says something really like total throwaway line like oh who's this person is this this must be one of your friends from college and I remember this book. at that moment, he decides that, of course, she can tell the twins apart. He she is the one and he has to spend the entire weekend making her fall in love with him because he knows that she is his 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 meant to be. And so he invents a wedding and invents a bridesmaid who has to drop out and she will fit the dress. So she has to come with him to the wedding and stay in a room with him in a big old bed and breakfast with a bunch of family members who don't have any idea who she is because that's not awkward. And I friggin' love that story. I loved it, even though I knew it was ridiculous. See, if, if anything, and I know people give me a lot of uh, a hard time because I'm so romance positive of late. It's all due to the book. It's not like I don't crack on romance. That is one of the more dangerous things about romance, I think. The emphasis on faded pairs and a sort of otherworldly, predetermined, fate-based idea that there's only one person for you. First of all, there's not only one person for you. And second of all, you're not going to magically know. Your hiney doesn't tingle. Your pupils don't dilate. You don't suddenly get wet underpants just because you've met the man of your dreams. When I met my husband, he was 17 and he had a mullet. And I thought he was cute. And because he was a 17-year-old man, he was a total douchebag. And he will tell you he was a douchebag. We did not get together till years later, but I knew I liked him. I don't think that I, you know, met the guy of my dreams at 17 because I went on to date other people. You don't like, you know, it's not like I, I met him and all other men turned into trolls. That I don't like. That, that, that's something that I think that romance, I also think romance writers tend to rely on that a lot. Like there's, well, no, there's mm. no other reason for these two to be together except that there's some sort of faded emphasis that they're going to be together. You're the hero. That's why. Duh. Let's go have sex. All right, so other canonical works. Well, I actually started to think that there were three canons that you could identify. A contemporary canon, a paranormal canon, and a historical canon. Oh, okay. And the contemporary would, by virtue of being the contemporary, also include romantic suspense because those are most often set in contemporary worlds. And then in the historical, you have old school and new school. And in contemporary, you would include the categories and um, the... Single title contemporary romances. So for the for the historical, or excuse me, for the paranormal, I thought, okay, well, you have to sort of look at early Anita Blake before she turned into a gleaming orifice, and Christine Fian and J.R. Ward. But then I wasn't sure how many books that were not necessarily really romances but had a strong romantic element should also be included. Oh, and Bitten. Bitten had to be in there. Well, I guess for me, paranormal romance, if you're going to talk about canonical works, I think you got to go back even farther. Maggie Shane wrote about vampires. God. Yes, you are totally right about that. That was that was the thing I missed. I'm going to look this up now. <laughs> the Twilight series um, in 1993. Um, that is old. That's that's well, that's a long time ago. Um, 
I wrote an article on Dear Author about the mother of paranormal romance, and I asserted that it was um, Christine Feehan. And mm -hmm. the reason I said it was Christine Feehan is I felt she was the first one to introduce the fated mate pairing. Yes. She had vampires who had no emotion and were saved by their mate, yep. which is a line that's repeated again and again and again. Yep, yep. But Feehan started publishing in the early 90s. Susan Sizemore, who also wrote about her her series, um, uh, she wrote a, uh, not really a crossover series, but a, a true vampire series, which I think was pretty formative. But she said that uh, Chelsea Yarborough, uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarborough St. Germain books are the first paranormal romances. Um, <clears throat> uh, Sherilyn Kenyon uh, published Fantasy Lover in 2002. Um, Laurel K. Hamilton was publishing back in 1993. Maggie Shane um, started publishing 1993. Dark Prince by Christine Feehan was first published in 1999. Mm, so there are some that predate Feehan. Yeah, so I, I would say that Laurel K. Hamilton uh, had a big impact on the romance, mm -hmm. paranormal romance. And Kenyon. Kenyon, Maggie Shane, uh, and then you know, a lot of a lot of romance authors point to Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, uh, J.R. Ward, Lara, Lara Adrian. Um, these are kind of modern, uh, contemporary or paranormal romance authors. Canonical for sure. Yes, uh, and Cresley Cole is in there too. But modern. Yes, and um, uh, Kelly Armstrong, because Kelly Armstrong. I think is, is significant because not only is Bitten one of my favorite books and it's our podcast, so we get to talk about what we like, but she also created a world that was focused on strong women characters who are, who are all focused from different paranormal backgrounds and her, I mean, that's the name of her series, the women of the other world. So it's all female based, which I think is pretty unique. Although someone will be like, no way, Sarah, back in like 1992. And the problem with, with, with my doing anything having to do with paranormal is that I got paranormaled out a while back. And so I haven't read so much of what's going on right now in, in paranormal romance. Um, I also think we might, in terms of old school and new school can, canon, want to include Patricia Briggs. She's new school. Although, oh, yes. You know, she's been writing for a long, long time. Um, Kim Harrison. She's a crossover she came out about the same time as um, Kelly Armstrong. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I remember, I remember reading her book. She also was one of the earliest books I found with tramp stamp tattoos on the heroines. Low slung leather pants immediately makes me think of Kim Harrison, which is probably not what they were going for, but that's what happened. Who do you think in paranormal romance is the most recently published author who has become canonical? Recently published author has become canonical. I think in terms of success, it would either be Cressley Cole or Lara Adrian. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. Now, what about historical? What do you unless think you is... want to count? Uh, unless you want to count what's her face? Um, Definitely, we got to count what's her face. God, <laughs> Stephanie Meyer. Oh no! All right, fine. Put <laughs> her down. You know, Linda Lale Miller also wrote um, Paranormals. Yeah, a while back. What about what about, what about oh. Anne Rice? Come on, Interview with a Vampire? Yeah. She also founded Male Male Romance. 
Yeah. <laughs> she is the reason that has happened. <laughs> Yeah, let's do contemporary. All right. Well, I think that contemporary romances arose out of category. Totally. So there has to be some category um, examination because you can't talk about contemporary single title without acknowledging the, con- the contribution of category romance. And I think actually that's where Nora Roberts be- best fits because she started in category and wrote really good category and then moved on to single title romantic suspense and single title contemporary. You know, she categories, also- are, categories are like soaps, you yes. know, almost nearly every, nearly every big contemporary name came out of the category ranks. Iris Johansson, yep. um, uh, Janet, uh, Janet Ivanovich, Nora Roberts, Linda Leo Miller, um, I mean, you just go on and on about the number of authors that started at Jenny Cruzy. What do you have a book of those that you would recommend? Um, sure. Jenny Cruzy, Chasing Bradley. Getting rid of Bradley? Getting rid of Bradley, whatever. Sorry. Bradley. Getting rid of Bradley, which is funny because that's one of my least favorite of hers. Really? But oh yeah. But I would put Bet Me in the canon as a single title. Oh, I hate that book. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Why? I think I, um, my hate for it has grown because of all the love for it. All the, <laughs> all the, oh my God, this is the best contemporary romance ever written. I oh. actually think it's a terrible contemporary romance. <laughs> That's funny because I think Bet Me started out in Candy's conversion kit. Like what are the romances that you give someone to show them that romance is, is awesome and worthy of reading and Bet Me was in her conversion kit. So what romance, what contemporary romance do you think is significantly more awesome than that one? And don't say all of them because I know if you hate it that much, probably most are better. <laughs> Well, even within the cruisy um, backlist, I think Welcome to Temptation is a better book. And I didn't like that one as much, but I'll put that down. That's really interesting. I had no idea you hated Bet Me. Oh, I do. I just thought Bet Me re- uh, praised a very unhealthy lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> How so? Um, she, she's constantly eating Krispy Kremes. Yes. Which is sickening. <laughs> yes, but there are people who constantly eat Krispy Kremes. I, but it's unhealthy. You cannot eat Krispy Kremes every day. And that was the like ideal there that, oh, you can eat Krispy Kremes every day. But I think that that's a valid message because there are people who have an unhealthy lifestyle. There are people who eat Krispy Kremes and they are also going to have an incredibly passionate, loving romance. You don't get to, you don't have to be thin and eating broccoli to earn a romance. And that's exactly why I think so many people like it. But that's okay. Well, and that's why I don't like it. <laughs> All right. So broccoli for you. Krispy Kremes for me. <laughs> I don't even I have like, a Krispy Kreme. I like Krispy Kremes. I just think that as a as a book, the 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 repeated use of food um it, it was in direct contradiction to the message of the story. You think so? Because I thought this, that that the food, the use of food was a blatant parallel to sex. And that women were supposed to deny themselves sex and enjoyable food because of an external ideal of behavior that wasn't realistic. It it all seemed so gluttonous. It was like, you can eat, you can't eat whatever you want forever and ever. You just can't. Well, you can, you just, you will pay the price in 
elastic waist pants. Unless or they're unless you're one of those lucky people who can. health problems or health problems. I don't. And, I and her as a as a size twelve. That's not even fat. <laughs> Speaking of contemporary and size twelve not being fat, Meg Cabot got to put her down. <laughs> well, seriously, that is not for a person who eats as crispy uh, creams every day in the amount that she did and all the heavy sauced foods and all of that. Mm-hmm. That's not a size 12 person. Marilyn Monroe was like a size 12. I'm trying just, to remember what the Marilyn Monroe size was. Cause I, I read about that really recently. Uh, whatever, but it's, uh, it's size 12 is not fat. Yes. Meg Cabot said so. It's just not. No, that- I agree with you. I agree with you. It's not. So size her, 12 is in regular stores. Size 12 is not in larger, larger stores. So she was trying to pass off this, uh, you know, I, I, ideal of, of a woman who was overweight, but she wasn't overweight. Size 12. I mean, I think men was like five, eight size 12 on a five, eight woman. That's like normal. Well, it's normal for everyday humans. It's not the normal that you're going to see in a magazine. A size 12 woman who's five, eight is still going to have some cellulite and curves and you're not going to see that on the on the standard of, of physical beauty for I, women. Uh, true, but in the book, she's represented as this sort of every woman, if unhealthy, she was going- overweight. She, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I thought that the book and the message of the book was unappealing. That's really interesting. I had no idea you disliked that book. So, what other contemporary single titles or categories do you think should be in there? Well, I think Rachel Lee's Conard County series is um, is a formative sort of book. You know, Suzanne Brockman, for example, also started out in categories. But categories, a very common theme amongst all books in romance is this connected series and mm-hmm. these overlaying plots. Uh, J.R. Ward, um, Lara Adrian, Suzanne Brockman. Suzanne Brockman, I think, really popularized it. Uh, Robin Carr, they all use this uh, element where they have two or three stories that overlap from book to book and book, and that's how readers return because they want to find out what's happened to these characters they've been introduced to. Mm -hmm. That was really a category uh, invention and used to great uh, success by Rachel Lee in her Connor County series, and I'm sure many, many other uh, um, authors in, in category books. I think you're right. I'm also looking at my list of old, old, old canon versus new canon, like writers who are now writing, who are part of the contemporary canon. I think Meg Cabot and Robin Carr fit into new canon. Definitely. Robin Carr is in the new canon. She might be the most recently published. Robin Cart might be the most recently published who gets is who who I would put as as a canonical author. And this this actually leads me to a question that I wrote at the top of my list and forgot to ask you. What is a canon? Like what do you consider the canon? My my thought was that a canonical romance is a book that has not only had an influence on the genre as a whole and that allows you to see where some of the tropes and traditions of the genre come from and where they first appeared, but also is a common experience among a greater number of readers. So that you'll have readers who have who have both experienced this book and can also say, oh, I read something similar to that way back when in this book, that they can also trace that history if they're so inclined. Canonical to me is um, when someone says, uh, uh, we're looking for books like X. Right. You are the book that someone is looking for a book like. 
Right. Yes. If you were going to put a, a Nora Roberts book in the contemporary canon, could you pick one to put in it? No, I don't even think she's canonical in the contemporary canon. You don't think Nora Roberts is canonical? In the contemporary canon? No. I don't. Where would you put her? Historical? No, I think that her J.D. Robb series is canonical. And where would you put that? Contemporary or paranormal or other? I'd probably put it in contemporary. See, I, I disagree with you. I definitely, I'm, I agree with you that J.D. Robb is canonical, but I think that Nora Roberts is also canonical because her contemporaries were the first to explore things like, or among the first, rather, to explore things like witchcraft with the Donovan series. She, when she started doing the paranoras in, in the category line, that that leaked out into other areas. I think that her type of heroine is influential. There's a handful of types of Nora Roberts heroines, but you've seen those heroines reproduced elsewhere. I think that her presence in category and in single title is influential to other contemporary writers. And I think if you took Nora Roberts out, if she was not publishing, if she'd never written a book, that contemporary romance would be a completely different thing. I disagree. You disagree? Yep. But I'm always right. Well, maybe you are. <laughs> See, I think if you remove Nora Roberts' publishing history from romance, the contemporary romance would look different. Would really? Who, who is who, who are her um, who, who's who's the Nora Roberts contemporary progeny? Who are the writers that take after Nora Roberts? Yep. I'm not saying that Nora Roberts isn't one of the single most influential writers in romance, but I think she's more influential because she's raised the profile of romance with her success. I, I don't see a lot of people writing like her. And maybe I'm completely off, but I, when I look at a Robin Carr book, I trace her stories directly back to Suzanne Brockman. How so? Because she has the same writing style. They, they have the same type of plotting, the same type of write, uh, character or uh, plot structure, the, the uh, way she weaves in stories in and out, the, um, the concentration of a certain type of characters within a small community. I don't see those parallels with Nora at all. She doesn't write a lot of connected books. I mean, she writes little trilogies, but she doesn't write, um, you know, 12 books surrounding the same group of people. You do have a point there. I don't know. I think that it's not just her popularity, Nora Roberts' popularity that's an influence. I think that her her type of romance in the beginning of the, of the silhouette uh, books has influenced many other writers. I think I think Nora's a very unique writer in that she writes about her strength is writing about relatable characters in a um in a setting in which you can connect with. Her strength isn't about the plot or although, you know, in in, in the JD Robb series, I think she does a really great job in creating suspense and writing good plots, but Nora Roberts' greatest influence is in romantic suspense, not just with J.D. Robb, but with the other single titles that she's written. But I, I just, I don't look at a bunch of contemporary authors and say, you know... These are Nora Roberts' progeny? Yeah. Whereas I look at Suzanne Brockman, and I see her from category, being influenced by category, 
um, incorporating those uh, that type of storytelling, and then other authors. You know, J.R. Ward talks about how she's heavily influenced by Brockman. I've never heard Robin Carr say that, but I look at her books and I think this is a Brockman type book. That's really interesting. So you see Brockman as sort of the origin of the interconnected large group series. Yeah, I think that like Lara Adrian, J.R. Ward, Robin Carr, um, they, uh, they all kind of stem from Brockman. That's really interesting. you know, her Navy SEALs. Um. And that's sort of the blend of contemporary and romantic suspense, because part of the action working against the hero and the heroine was the suspense plot that they were dealing with in addition to their own attraction. And I think that's why you have to go back even to Rachel Lee's Connor Carno series. Right, because that was another series where there was a it mystery was, and a romance. Yeah, law enforcement, mm-hmm. romantic suspense. You know what would be interesting? Tracing the hero archetypes backwards. Well, I think that, you know... um, That's only an hour or so, really. Stephanie Lawrence, I think... To me, Stephanie Lawrence made a major break in hero archetypes because before you had kind of the McNaught-Devereaux hero who um, didn't want to fall in love didn't wasn't pursuing the heroine and the heroine loved the hero and got her heart broke repeatedly by the hero. Then you have Stephanie Lawrence and she began what I felt was the heroine pursuit um, hero archetype where the hero relentlessly pursued the heroine who did not want to fall in love, get married, whatever about devil's bride the fact that he wants to marry her and she wants nothing to do with him right that was a very different book i felt at At that that time time. yes i completely agree what would you put her in a new canon or an old canon um well she that was in the 90s i guess uh she's a new canon i think think because i think Devereaux, um mcnaught Lindsay, those are old canons. That's what I had on my list, too. I also- you know, one of the things I would trace directly back to uh, Nora Roberts is her heroes, and that she, um, I'm not sure who is the first author to start doing the hero point of view, but uh, she has a, a I, f- I think that her heroes I agree. were very groundbreaking at the time. I, and I, not be their characters, but the fact that what we heard from them. One of the, I just asked that on, on Twitter. I, I asked um, if Nora Roberts had not published, would, would contemporary romance look differently? And one of the replies is that she, didn't she really pioneer getting to see the hero's point of view? I, the, the hero point of view, definitely. And the, in the, the role of the hero in the story can, I think can, yes, you're, you're totally right about that. But now, so you are right. She is canonical. I, I guess the question is, can authors be canonical just for being popular? Because I, I don't think so. I don't think you can just be canonical because you're popular, because there has to be an influence as well as a common experience to be canonical. If a lot of readers have read your book, that's great. But if you haven't influenced anything, you were just popular within a, within a, within a select confine, then that doesn't necessarily make you can, canonical. It makes you popular for a period of time. There is a lot of canonical authors that no one's reading right now. 
<laughs> but who've left an imprint on the on the genre. You know, Julia Quinn, she's canonical. For historical, yes. She but she's a type of she is she has defined a type of historical romance. And to me that that's the that's canonical. Right, because she had an influence and created something that other people have replicated. It's not just that she's popular. Other people have done what she does, or she is the the sort of point of origin for a lot of a type of specific um books within historical romance. I, I just want to make clear that just because I don't think an author's canonical doesn't mean I don't think they're important to the genre or, or that, that they're, they're any bad good. writers. Right. We're arguing about uh, what what we believe is canonical and, and not the the quality of the writing. Who else do you put in the new historical canon? Or is there an oh, who is the art the author who is recently published, most recently published that you would put in the new historical canon? Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, hold the hold the phone. Hold the homophone. <laughs> <laughs> or homophone. Linda Howard, honey. Oh, Christ, how did I forget that? I'm going to have to edit that out. I can't, you know, curse. Linda Howard. Oh, yes, particularly in suspense. Is she new canon or old canon? Well, you know, she also was um category. Category. Mhm. I'm telling you, every great author started in category. It's like soap operas. Um, I think she's very canonical, and her alpha, her over the top alpha males, her you know blend of romantic uh, uh, and suspense. I think the uber alpha male is directly related to her, and the um, the heroic conversion from. I'm never going to get married to, nope, hold on, hold all calls. We have a winner. And this is the woman for me. And that, that change in a Linda Howard novel happens like, you know, within 20 minutes. Yeah. With ferns. Got to have ferns. She created the fern hero. See, I just think that the fact the that most- you don't like that book just shows how wrong you are. <laughs> You can yeah. be right about other things. I can be but right about that, but not this. It's offset in a in a really um, uh, huge way by your dislike for Mark that Justine. book, Kill and Tell. I do not like insta love, and I do not like heroes who turn on a dime from "I'm the most interesting, sexy man in the world" to "I will be there for this woman forever." There were huge leaps in logic and judgment that I had to make to follow that book, and I just could not jump that high. Well, I'm sorry that you don't have that skill. Yeah, it's totally, totally me, not the book. Totally something wrong with me. I, I completely can admit that. No problem. Who else do you think falls into the new historical canon? Do you think the Eloisa new- James is in there? Yeah. What about Laura Kinsale? I think she, that she's, she's can- old school canonical. I think so, too, because I think that she focused without flinching on the emotionally wrenching stories and plot lines and writers like Anna Campbell and their emotional um, depth and the way in which they focus on angst and emotional pain, I think can be traced back to Kinsale. And I think Joan Wolfe also did a lot of angst in romance. Really? Yeah. The books of hers that I've read, there's a certain emotional, dare I say, melancholy about those books that the characters have things that they are sad about that, that, that torture them that are not going to get better even with the best orgasms in the world. 
I think that's a great term for her writing, melancholy. But I don't think melancholy is the same as angst. No, it's not. It's not. But there's, I think that they influence one another. Old school historical romances. We include Johanna Lindsay. Yep. All of the J's. Julie, Judith, Jude, and Joanna, and Joan. <laughs> and Jane, and Janine, and Janelle, and whoever else. What, what, the- about, what about Robin Schoen and Susan Johnson? Because they were the ones that wrote really spicy um, historical romances at a time that they really didn't have that. I mean, I think that those two authors, whether they realize it or not, no, whether definitely authors realize it are canonical. I think that, yes, I think that Susan Johnson and Robin Schoen definitely had an influence in the level of sexuality present in a historical romance and also in the portrayal of women who got real horny, really horny. Writing really independent women. Yes. Susan Johnson was all over that. Oh, yeah. Women who not only knew and owned their own horny pants, but knew and owned their own selves to a greater extent. Pennant women, they had money. They had um, autonomy. Uh-huh. They, uh... Oh, I just realized somebody that we've forgotten for the new, new canon. Oh, who's that? Lisa Kleypas. I was reading the Sherry Thomas book that's coming out this summer, and oh my God, it is, it is so emotional. And I wrote her uh, email at like 11 o'clock at night, as I do often, as you know. Yes. Um, And I said, uh, you are ripping my heart out, and I'm only on chapter two. And I was explaining this book to another person. I said, if I was an emotional person, I would have cried the entire book. Oh, my gosh. But I'm not. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle this then. I, um, I oh have an email God. from her. I have an email from her here that says, so if you know anybody who likes having their heart ripped out, here's an ARC. <laughs> it's one of those books where it hurts so good. You know, like if you like angst, This is going to be ideal for you? Yeah, it serves it up two doses at a time. Nice. That's always a good thing. If you like angst, knowing that you're going to get it. Like, I know there are readers who gravitate towards Anna Campbell. And you know what? I'm actually wondering if I should put her in the new canon as well. Do you think that she has had... What about Elizabeth Hoyt? Elizabeth Hoyt and Anna Campbell, I I would put them both in. Who are they influencing? That's a good question. It may be that they are just the descendants of emotional romance and aren't necessarily influencing people themselves. Well, no, I actually take that back. I don't know about Elizabeth Hoyt, but I do believe that Anna Campbell has influenced a lot of um, similar writing because she not only explored emotionally painful stories and angsty stories that were about people who were very much damaged, but she also brought back the exploration of forced seduction and the debate as to whether or not a character was raped, which as you know, Robin bases on the idea that the reader is consenting. She has reestablished that discussion of forced seduction and rape in historical romance because of the situations of within her characters and that has i've seen in other books even in contemporary erotic romances the the question of force is still explored and i think she's in part due i think some credit is due to her establishment of that discussion with her first book was it seducing the mistress claiming the courtesan now that wasn't all that long ago that was 2009 but i think that 
I think that that establishes some of her influence. Because I think, didn't they even, um, didn't even someone make up a, a name for her type of book? And I can't even remember what it is. I don't know what it is. What's interesting about Anna Campbell's books, and the reason I think that they're influential, is that she, I think in her writing, deliberately courts reader divisive reaction because there's some people who say, oh my God, this is amazing. And then there are people who are saying, no, this is going back in time to romance that I didn't like, and this is unacceptable, and I'm really angry about it. And so she is courting a divisive reaction. She's not trying to appeal to everyone with her historical romances. She's trying to create a divided reaction among readers. And so you have the five stars and the one stars ready to battle it out, which of course makes more people read them. It's not like Julia Quinn, who is unilaterally appealing to a lot of people um, and who is not going to surprise, rip your heart out and rape anybody. Although there are characters that some people say come close. I think that that is specifically another element of... Anna Campbell's influence. And, and that's kind of odd for me to put her in a canon because she's only, her first book came out in 2009. It's not that long ago. Well, you know, I don't know that she influenced anybody, but I do know it's a much talked about book. Mm-hmm. And that is Lisa Valdez's. Oh God. Yeah. Passion. And, and, and if we're going to talk about specific titles, I mean, I think Jude Devereaux's Knight in Shining Armor, and mm-hmm. I don't know that it's necessarily canonical, but I don't think that you can be a well-read romance reader without having read that book. But you know what? I just realized we forgot some really big names in historical. Yeah. Bertrice so- Small. Oh, my God. Is she really that big? She was influential not only in the degree of sexuality, but in the sort of saga historical romances. Yeah, I think that she has to be included in that canon. Even if you don't like her books, I think that she was influential. Because, you know, much like Robin Show and her characters had horny pants. They had innocent horny pants, but they figured out how to wear those horny pants very quickly. Oh, so Kathleen Woodawess. Mm-hmm. She's on my list. And I read more Bertrice Small than I read Kathleen Woodawess. Because the the small heroines for me had more of a backbone than the Woodowis heroines did when I read them, and I liked the small heroines better. I also liked the fact that Bertrice Small's characters sort of wandered through historical times, like Forrest Gump in the Tudor era. Well, I'll tell you this. <clears throat> I think I read one of each book and never went back. But you and I have very different tastes, and you don't often – I don't think you are as much of a historical reader as you are other genres. Am I wrong about that? That – <laughs> I hardly ever read contemporary until maybe in the last five years. So let's go back to the new historical canon. Do, can you think of a writer who recently published who is canonical? Yeah, Mel Jean Brooke and her steampunk series, because every steampunk book I read reads like a pale ripoff of her. Um, <laughs> to the point that I don't know how many Iron Men I've read about. <laughs> So do you think that her influence is canonical, though her though not not as many people have has have read her stories in common? Yeah, I think that she's influencing a genre. I, I mean, I even saw in, um, at the HarperCollins um, catalog site they were citing some new steampunk author as uh, in the same vein as Mel Jean Brooke. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. So that that's canonical to me when you say. Yeah, if she's influ, you know, we should really have writers tell us, you know, who's influencing you. <laughs> we'll yeah. base our canonical list on that. I think that when we post this, there'll be many people talking about how wrong we are and how we don't know anything. 
what are the books that you think any romance reader should have read to understand the genre, aside from Night in Shining Armor? Flame and the Flower. One of, um, oh, Pat Gaffney's um, The To Have and the Hold, although I've come to not like it as much because everyone loves it so much. Off by hype, aren't you? Yeah, I, well, a little. <laughs> Just, I guess, to be curmudgeonly. <laughs> And without sentiment, that's our Jane. Well, someone has to be it. <laughs> and I am uh, of too much sentiment and slightly curmudgeonly. Here's my last question for you. What do you think is in your conversion kit? Like who, what book would you give someone or books would you give someone who is curious about romance, but had never read one? Well, that's a different story about than canonical. No, it's it? it's 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 different, but there are some overlaps. There are books that are influential not only to other writers but in getting readers to adopt and understand romance. Well, see, the, I even think the adopt and understand are two different things. Yes, of course, I agree. Because if I'm trying to get someone to a, to become a romance reader, I don't think I'm giving her. Kathleen Wiss's The Fame and the Flower. <laughs> Why not? But if you want to understand romance, if you're like going to be a scholar of it, then I think you have to go back. Maybe you even have to go back to the early 1900s and read The Sheik by E.M. Hull, mm -hmm. which is, you know, probably the very first forced seduction rape yep. book. And then well, you and might even have to go back farther than that to read captivity narratives to understand. Well, that, that is a captivity narrative. Right. But there's older ones than that. Older than E.M. Hull's The Sheik? Yeah, I studied them in a in a course about um, early American literature. Yes, there are 17th, 18th, and 19th century captivity narratives. 18 the ones that I read for a specific class about early 18 early 1800s literature was the gem um, uh, the narrative. Oh, here it is: the narrative of the life of Miss Mary Jemison. Oh, Mary Smith and Mary Jemison. Those were the two we read: 1815 and 1824. And then Mary Rowlandson. A lot of Marys. Oh, Mary's got kidnapped. What the hell's that about? Anyway. So yeah, if you really, if you, there's, that's a whole other type of, of uh, romantic history, but I agree. I don't think you're going to give somebody the flame and the flower. Do, do you think that those continue to influence the the historical romance genre now? Well, I, I think that it does to the extent that people talk about a certain period of time as being bad because it has certain tropes, which are, currently repeated in books that are published today. I'm just saying in general, I think that there's a lot of people who look back at the genre and say that was bad. It was a bad time. But the fact of the matter is, I think that the 80s, late 80s, early 90s to mid 90s was a golden period of romance. Love Swept uh, started in eight, 1983. And to me, that represented a time frame that uh, they really pushed the envelope mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what people uh, constituted, what they thought was romance, what types of characters belonged in romance. I felt like it was far more creative, creative and courageous in that time period than it is today. Oh, I agree. So I think that if you're gonna if 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 you're a person and you're gonna come into a uh, discussion about romance and you're gonna say romance is X and romance is Y then you have to clarify you've only been reading it for two or three years and you've only read a certain amount of books because all of that goes into what kind of weight to be afforded your uh, opinion. 
I mean, I, I, you know, I've read some of these scholarly works and it's by people who've read, you know, 20 romances. <laughs> I'm not saying that you can't talk about romance and no. that you can't give your opinion but and you that can't your give opinion might not spectrum. be valid. But if you're going to start making pronunci- pronunciations about the shape of the genre, then you have to have read deep within the genre. Yes. And I also do not think that old school romances are inherently bad. I go back and read them all the time. They aren't what I, as you said, they aren't what I would recommend to someone who has never read the genre. And there are a lot of misapprehensions about the genre based on the books from those times. But I agree with you. Some of the most amazing books I read came out of that period. Well, I think that with any time period, there's really, you know, 85 to 90% of what was published was crap. And um, (laughs) 5% was okay and 2% was good and, you know, 2% was great. Mm -hmm. I know that doesn't equal 100%, you haters. Kathleen Widowis is, I think, an influential character. You know, part of the reason that it's hard for us to say what's canonical in terms of what's influential is that we're not writers. No. So we don't know what may have influenced Anna Campbell or Nalini Singh or... Uh, even Nora Roberts Mm -hmm. without asking them. So uh, all we can do is look at the books that we've read and say, well, we think that they're similar to X, which predated them. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, Robin Carr may come back and say, I've never read a Brockman book in my entire life. And that might be true. And, and so we're making assumptions based upon what we've read and we might be totally off. So, if we're measuring canonical by what's influential in the genre itself, I think the term canonical, you tried to define it earlier. It's, it's just has a lot of different meanings. If you're making up a package of books that you think every romance reader should read. Um, That's a different question. Yes. It's a different question. And, and, and what, what type of re, what type of books does that person want to read? Do you want to read books because you want to gain an understanding of how of of the romance genre and the history of it? Do you want to just read wh- what we think are some of the greatest romances ever published? I mean, that's a, an entirely different s- story. Our entire podcast is based on a fallacious uh, uh, and probably inaccurate definition of canonical. And yes. it probably changed from book to book and we didn't even realize it. Yep, that's true. But it's also difficult to establish a canon of a genre that changes so significantly within a, within a short period of time. It, it may be that canon can only really be established from a point of greater distance. Because it could be in, you know, another 10, 15 years, nobody reads Julia Quinn or nobody reads Anna Campbell. Yeah, it, it's hard to say where the genre is going to go. And it also is, is hard to say how much the role of author branding and author prominence and promotion is going to change their long-term, the long-term memory of that author in a reader. Because there are, there are historical romance writers who have a great deal of name recognition. And it may not be that their books are all high quality, but their, their name has a great deal of recognition. Whereas their book, the book by one or two authors that are really good, the, the name has no recognition at all. And I think that's this, that's the thing like with Mel Jean Brooks, she's not broadly read by readers. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she's broadly read by authors who want to write kind of uh, historical fantasy, yes. historical science fiction. And so she's becoming um, kind of the 
the textbook, like hire was the textbook for many Regency writers. Mm -hmm. She's becoming the textbook, the, the sort of nexus of steampunk for lack of a better term. We should, we should have Mel Jean on the, on the podcast and then ask her to tell us who influences her. That would be like five hours. (laughs) <laughs> there would not be any romance reader. Right? <laughs> I know. It would be like all these people be like, who? <laughs> I do actually think we should ask if she would do a podcast because it would be really fun. And that's all for this week's podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Sassy Outwater, who provided the music. This track is called Room 215, and it's from Pete Bogferries, who we like oh so very much. We have a new feature for you to give us feedback. We still have the email address at sbjpodcast at gmail, but we also have a Google voice number. So if you'd like to call and leave us a message about what book we neglected to put on the canon list or what book we should not have but is, or just to tell us that we're completely out of our minds, you can call us and leave a message at 201-371-DBSA. That's 201-371-3272. You can leave us a message and let us know what you think. For example, after we finished recording, I got an email from Jane that said the following. Susan Elizabeth Phillips, Rachel Gibson Sports. And I replied, are you talking canon? Because we definitely forgot those authors. And she said, oh, yes. So I'm sure there are more that in the the roundabout of our conversation, we neglected to mention that should be on there. Feel free to call us and tell us which ones we forgot, because I'm sure there are many. Please be aware that if you do leave us a message, we may use it in a future podcast so that we can use your recording. Make sure to identify yourself by how you would like to be known on the internet. You know, you can call and say it's Sparkle Monkey Pants, and you're calling from Akron, Ohio, and we'll list you as Sparkle Monkey Pants from Akron, Ohio. I have no problem if you're wearing Sparkle Monkey Pants. You can cloak your identity in whatever kind of sparkly pants you want. But if you want to leave us a voicemail, it would be awesome to hear from you and hear what you think of this week's podcast. Thank you again for listening, and wherever you are, in whether or not you're wearing sparkle monkey pants, we wish you the very best of reading. Bye.